So we are continuing our summer series, which is working our way through the book of Second Peter, or the letter of Peter to a whole bunch of churches. It was a circular letter. And uh, it, uh, we're coming to the end. We're, we're in chapter 3. I, I, I doled out all the really difficult passages to the other people on the preaching team. I get to, uh, no, today's not, not an easy one, I think, in some ways. Uh, but uh, but they, they, they did. I, they like to joke about it, but the reality is it just fell that way that they got the most difficult passages <laughs> in Second Peter. Uh, but we're looking at chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 today, and if you have a Bible with you, open it to Second Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those and work your way from the right to the, to the left. And it's one of the short letters just before the book of Revelation, so it shouldn't be too difficult to find, and there's always a table of contents if you have trouble, maybe you go buy it or something like that. So the verses that we're looking at today have to do, as with last week, have to do with the return of Christ. But this week especially, it has to do with the timing of the return of Christ. So by the time you leave today, you will know the date. I'm kidding. Anybody who's here for the first time is like, oh, oh. you will not know the date. Uh, we're going to see interestingly in this passage, some tensions. A really interesting one that I'd, I'd never put this passage together with some other passages, and it creates kind of a, an interesting emotional tension, and it's a tension that I don't think we're supposed to resolve, and so I'll, I'll call that out when I, when I get there. But it has to do with our understanding and our attitude, our understanding of the second coming and our attitude toward uh, the second coming. So, the second coming of Christ is one of the central teachings of Scripture. It is, it is so central, it really is not an exaggeration to say that on average, the second coming, the new creation, all the events, the judgment, all the events that are going to happen around the coming of Christ, can be, it, it is referred to or talked about probably on average on every page of the New Testament. It permeates everything. It permeates everything in so much that sometimes it becomes just kind of like the air that we breathe, that we just kind of pass right by it. But it's there. Uh, it's, it's a very, very important doctrine. Handled wisely and handled biblically, it can transform our lives when we really understand it, and it can transform our churches mishandle it, and uh, you can have a lot of troubles. It can be divisive within churches, among believers, and it can also be just this huge distraction from what God's agenda is for our lives and what He really wants us to be thinking about. So, I want to say that again. Handled wisely and handled biblically, it can have a huge impact. Mishandled and it can be divisive and a huge distraction in your life. So we're going to pray, and the prayer today of illumination is based on our passage for today. So in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so patient with us. You desire us. You desire for us to repent. You want us to turn from our own direction. 
and to follow you and go in your direction. Jesus, you show us what living for the Father looks like. Holy Spirit, you empower us to repent and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins through repentance to others. Teach us and move our hearts through your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to watch a video, and you're going to follow along with the reading of today's passage as a couple of five ochres read the passage, but I want to set things up a little bit. So just in case you weren't here last week or forget uh, what we covered last week, the first seven verses, in the first seven verses of chapter seven, chapter three, Peter addresses people who really question whether Jesus is going to come at all. In fact, they deny that Jesus is going to come back. They are what Peter calls scoffers. And it seems that some of the scoffers are among them. They're kind of like, hey, where, where is he? You know, he hasn't come back. Wasn't he going to come back right away? And, you know, and all that sort of thing. So that's their attitude. Today, he continues to speak to it, so he transitions rather seamlessly to addressing believers, followers of Jesus, not scoffers, just followers of Jesus, who have just questions about the second coming, primarily what's taking him so long. Now imagine this is in the 60s, <laughs> you know, almost 2,000 years ago, and they were already wondering what's taking him so long. Uh, so it is quite likely that there are a lot of us who are wondering what's taking him so long uh, even today. And so he speaks specifically to that. He explains that God's experience of time, it's a familiar passage for many of you, God's experience of time is different than our experience of time. He explains that there is a very good reason for His delay. It's not probably the only reason, but there's a really good reason for His delay. And that when He comes, there's going to be a judgment and a renewal that's going to take place. And so, that's the gist of the passage. Follow along, please, as it is read to us. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. All right, so that last part there in verse 10, just to, just to let you know, um, we're not going to really get into that until two weeks from today uh, because it, it sounds like just like total destruction, and it may mean and probably does mean something other than that, okay? And so... Um, just to let you know, we're not going to get into that part of it uh, this week. But we are going to talk about the timing and a little bit about what I'm just calling religious mathematics. Because numbers can be tricky and math can be tricky. I have this thing that I do with kids, and there's going to be a theme here, of course. You're going to go, you really like to give kids a hard time. I have this thing I do with kids. Usually they have to be old enough to be able to do some basic math. So I'm like single-digit addition. Okay, so they got to be that old. And, uh, and so I put up my hands and I say, how many fingers do I have? And they say, 10. You're probably thinking 10, but I have 11 fingers. This isn't the not counting the thumbs trick. I, you thought that, right? No. 
how many fingers do I have, including my thumbs? Okay, I have 11. And they look at me, and I go, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. 6 and 5 is 11. And uh, if, if, you, if you're really good with math, you're just shaking your head. If you're not really good with math, you're, wait, 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 wait. You know, <laughs> that's confusing. <laughs> Uh, I did a, something similar to this years ago when one of my sons was in high school and was driving him and a friend, and we got talking about something, I can't remember what, what it was, and I said, you realize that if you fly in a certain direction, there comes a certain point where you cross a date line and you can actually be in the previous day from when you left. And I said, and scientists have proven that if you keep going in that direction fast enough, you can arrive back to where you took off on the day before you took off. Now, he knew, he's in high school, and he's a smart guy. He knew that this friend knew that I can't be serious, but it freaked him out a little bit. It's like, wait, 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 I, wait, I, I know that's not true, but wait, wait, you know, that, that kind of a thing. So, math can be tricky, and in verse 8, Peter introduces us in a sense, to religious mathematics uh, by explaining, and this is more than math, but explaining that God, for God, time, He experiences time differently than we experience time. So, let's look again at the first thing uh, that, he's, that He says about the delay uh, right there in verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Okay, we talk around here a lot. We'll talk about, we'll kind of give the background to this a little bit more when we begin our Genesis series in, in September. But we talk a lot about hyperlinks in Scripture. You know, like a hyperlink, you're reading an article online and it's underlined or a little bit of different color, and if you hit on it, it takes you to another link. This is one of those hyperlinks. And it's one of the common hyperlinks because what he's doing here is he's actually quoting Scripture or not so much quoting it, but paraphrasing a passage of Scripture. And the passage of Scripture that he is paraphrasing is Psalm 90 verse 4 where it says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. So he's paraphrasing that idea. And he expects that people understand that he is quoting one of the Psalms. And this is exactly where he gets the whole idea of this, what I'm calling religious math. Now, interestingly, if you go back, uh, you know, even 1,500 years, even more than that, there were uh, rabbis and there were uh, Christians as well who took this verse quite literally. And by taking it literally, they predicted when the final judgment and the end of the world as we know it was going to take place. And you may go, how could they do that? What, you know, what would, would do that? Well, as it's mentioned in this passage, uh, it's also a hyperlink to many Old Testament passages that speak of the day of the Lord. There's a day of the Lord that's coming, and it's a reference, we learn in the New Testament, to the second coming of Christ. And uh, in the Old Testament, it's referring to that final, final judgment and all of that. Okay, so the day of the Lord. 
At the same time, as most of you know, there was a day of the week that was referred to as the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, Saturday, all right? So, there was this equation that was being made, and the whole idea was, well, what if the day of the Lord, the end, and the Lord's Day are referring kind of to the same thing, the Lord's Day metaphorically to the last day. There were six days of creation, then a seventh day, the day of the Lord. If each day of creation then is a thousand years, as Psalm 90 says, then we can predict, if we can figure out when the creation happened, we can predict when the end is coming. For Christians, when Christ is coming back, for uh, rabbis, when the final judgment is going to happen, probably, you know, you know which would, would include some of the things that we as Christians expect at that time and, and some other things that they expected as well. So, what they failed to see, and not all, this was not the primary way of interpreting that passage, but the people who did that, what they failed to see was that Psalm 90 verse 4 was metaphorical. It's a, I don't even know if metaphor is the right word, an analogy of sorts. Uh, it's poetry. It is poetry. A thousand years in your sight are like a day, like a day. So, it's an analogy. It's a simile. It's like a day that has just gone by. All right. So, uh, what they were doing was bad religious math. All right. They needed to go get some remedial math, or maybe remedial interpretation to fix that. So Peter and the psalmist, though, are making the same point. And I think uh, that Donald Morcon, who has uh, a popular commentary on Second Peter, I think he puts it really well when he says, and I think he gets it right, when he says, the Lord works according to a different timetable than ours. In fact, and this is kind of hard to grasp with our minds. In fact, time is part of the created order, and God stands above and beyond time in eternity so that every point on the time continuum is present to Him. That's a little bit of speculation there, but I think he's probably, probably right about that. Peter is sounding a warning, and uh, he's sounding a warning to people that uh, that we need to be really careful. And it's something that applies not just to the second coming. It's something that applies to so many different areas of our life because his warning is not to shrink God down to our size. We have a tendency not only to shrink God down to our size, but to create our God, you know, kind of we create, we're, we're idol factories. So we are always trying to reshape God into something that reflects more of our values, our understanding, the way that we are, the way that we would think. And so we have a tendency to create God in our own image. And, um, and so he's sounding a warning about that because God is immense and God is beyond, beyond our understanding in so many different ways. Yet, if I could have the next slide, because of God's grace and mercy, we can know God personally. It's not like he's so immense and beyond our understanding that there's nothing we can know about God. No. And we can know what we need to know about him. But there is immensely more that we don't know than what we do know. Peter's and the psalmist's math 
should humble us before God and before others. So this doesn't just help us a little bit, just a little bit in explaining kind of Peter's explanation of the delay and how the delay works. It should cause us to right-size God in our minds and right-size ourselves. It should humble us uh, because there is so much. And humble us even with other people because there are things. There are things we can know that God tells us and we need to do what He tells us to do, but there are a lot of things that He doesn't tell us and that we just don't know. And that should make us treat one another in humble, humble ways. All right, so Peter gives us one reason for the delay uh, next. And it doesn't mean, again, as I said earlier, it's not the only reason per se, but Peter says the delay is due to God's love and due to his concern for humanity. So that's in verse 9. So look at verse 9 with me, where it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Okay, so that kind of ties to what he's just said about a thousand, about a day and a year. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repentance. So what is, why is God taking so long? Peter says, first, God's timetable is different than ours. But secondly, God's concerns are greater than ours. God's concerns are greater than ours. So reading Peter's explanation in this second part of verse 9 reminds me of that kind of infamous job interview question, which is, what is your greatest weakness? Don't you love that one? Have you ever been asked that one in an interview? And, um, you know, the, the kind of standard answer, nobody, I don't think, says this, but the standard answer is either I work too hard, <laughs> that's my weakness, or the other one, I just care too much. I just care too much. So it's, it's the I just care too much, which uh, is the one that I thought of when I read uh, his answer. So I looked up how to answer these kinds of questions, okay, online. And uh, I narrowed it down to my favorite three ways to answer. And one of them is the interview asks you, what is your greatest weakness? And you say, I'm too honest. And the interviewer said, that's not a weakness. And you say, I really don't care what you think. <laughs> All right. The other answer is, I really can't tell you what my, what my weaknesses are right now or my weaknesses right now because I always believe in identifying my weaknesses and turning them into strengths. And right now, I'm in between weaknesses. <laughs> that one might work. That, that one might get a chuckle and a... Um, but it might also make the person feel like you're making fun of them. So be careful. And then really the one that we all want to say, which is, what's my greatest weakness? Concealing my contempt for pointless interview questions. <laughs> all right. So the old standard, care too much. And that's kind of what Peter says is the reason for Christ's delay. Peter says, Christ hasn't returned because he cares so much. Not too much, but he cares so much. He doesn't want anyone to perish, and he wants everyone to come to repentance. Now, Peter's answer here creates one of the tensions that I was talking about 
And it's a tension I don't think can be removed. It's, it's one of those tensions, and there's a lot of tensions in our lives and just our daily life, but also in our Christian life, in our, our ability to understand the things of God. There's some tensions that we're not supposed to remove because they're kind of above our pay grade or they are part of the reality of life in this broken world. And I think um, this, is, this one is one of them. Uh, so, here's the tension. On the one hand, we should want Jesus to return, and there's plenty of passages in Scripture that suggest that. We should want Jesus. On the other hand, Peter implies there's something good about his delay. In other words, there might be a reason that we don't want him to come, and he's giving us what that reason is. Uh, there's a lot in the Bible about looking forward to an eagerly awaiting Christ's return. Uh, Paul speaks of it as something that he eagerly anticipates over and over again in Scripture. So in Philippians 3.20, he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there. That's talking about the return of Christ. We're waiting. We're eagerly awaiting for return of of the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. If you ever, ever wonder why we make such a big point about the resurrected body of Christ and why it is that there's going to be a material universe where we are going to have resurrected bodies like Christ, this is just one of those passages that makes that point. We're not going to be disembodied spirits floating around, you know, someplace in the heavens. That's not the vision of this. So there's a sense in which we're to pray, come Lord Jesus. There's, you find that in the scripture. On the other hand, there's a sense in which we might say, um, don't, you know, please don't come, Lord Jesus. Okay, so a little bit more in the come, Lord Jesus. Um, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our, there it goes again, bodies, the redemption of our bodies. Here's another one from the Apostle Paul. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. One that didn't make the cut uh, time-wise for the uh, sermon application guide, 2 Timothy 2.8. Now there is in store for me, Paul says, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, the day of Christ when he returns, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance, who have longed for his appearance, waiting with eager anticipation, longing for his appearing seems to be the norm. But when you read what Peter said, I'd never, I'd had the thought that I'm going to share with you, but I'd never put these two verses together, Peter implies that we might also dread that day because some people we know and some people that we love and that we care about haven't yet repented. And that day could come and they haven't yet repented. And they are not going to greet Christ with joy if you believe what the Bible says about Christ's coming and what's going to happen. Seeing Christ is in reality going to be a terrifying experience for them. So which is it? 
Should we desire his coming now or should we ask for a delay because people we love may need more time to repent? Yes, <laughs> it's both. It's, it's intention. Life is filled with this sort of thing. When a loved one, someone we love who loves Jesus is suffering and on the verge of death, what do we often feel? We have this tension between wanting them to be freed and go to the Lord and this wanting them to be near, not wanting to say goodbye until the day that we're going to see them again. Um, if you have kids, you, you eagerly anticipate and you want them to go when it's time to go, when they have an opportunity, when when either they're going to go to school or they're going to start a job or they've gotten a job someplace else that might be the, the right job for them and you're happy for them at the same time, you're like broken inside that they're going to be living so far away and you're not going to see them as much as you used to see them. Um, think of parents of kids who are missionaries in faraway lands. And the excitement that they are doing that work in Christ's name, that they are doing that work, and at the same time, watching them and sometimes your grandchildren going far, far away. And the gaps between seeing each other are going to be. So there's a tension there. You can't, you can't resolve it. You can't just say, oh, yeah, 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 and, and I'm just going to forget the downside of this. There, there's a good and there is a downside of it. So pray and hope for Jesus' return to come soon. Pray for your loved ones to repent and hope for a long enough delay. That's the way it is. There's a question in the sermon application guide that calls your attention to what Paul says in Philippians 1 that's not the same thing but comparable. And see how he comes to a conclusion, all right? So there's a question there for your reflection uh, in, in the future. There's another tension that I want to call attention to, though, a second tension. God desires for everyone to repent, yet not everyone repents. And you might say, well, yeah, of course, because there's a thing called free will, and it wouldn't be real repentance, would it? It wouldn't be real love, would it, if kind of God, you know, made us believe or whatever. And that's certainly part of the answer. But why can't God make a vision of life with Him so irresistible to everyone that everyone, or at least a lot more people, would repent? I mean, there's a whole theology that says God elects, right? I, I'm, it's Reformed theology, and I definitely lean in this direction, that there's a whole, that God elects those before the foundation of the world who are going to believe in Him. How does he do it? He makes faith irresistible. And he, he, makes, he makes Christ irresistible, grace irresistible, and he creates um, the illumination that we need to have faith so that our faith is not like something that I've I got to one-up on somebody. I've got to work. I've got something that I can say, well, at least I have faith and you don't. All right, so it takes faith in that form of theology. It takes faith out of it. But the question is, why doesn't he just, this is the biggest objection to it, right? Why doesn't he do that for everyone? 
And theoretically, he can, right? I think, at least from my perspective, he can do that for everyone. And actually, the Bible doesn't answer that question, certainly not directly as far as I can ascertain. But here's the thing. We can trust God. We have to. If we use our brains, we can trust God with our unanswered questions. We can trust that when He answers later what He's chosen not to answer now, so you know, search the Scripture, I can't find an answer to my big question, but later when He answers it, something that He hasn't answered now, it will make glorious sense because He is a glorious God. He is a glorious God. And we have to do that sometimes. Uh, it doesn't mean we stop thinking. It doesn't mean we don't try to give explanations. It isn't that we don't try to even embrace those explanations. But it does mean that, and, and by the way, this is whatever theology you come from, whether you're from Reformed or you're more of an Arminian tradition, you have the same question. Why doesn't God just make it irresistible for everyone? Certainly some will still reject but what about all that, that maybe would if it was made irresistible? Well, in a sense, if it was irresistible, it can't be rejected um, because it would be irresistible. Okay, so let's talk about timing of the coming of Christ. Most of you are old enough. Yes, most of you are old enough to remember the old GPS systems that we had for cars. And if you took a wrong turn, how it punished you, right? It was like a punishment. It was like it was angry at you. I think there was a person, a central person. That per they took a wrong turn. And instead of just saying, you took a wrong turn, it would say, recalculating. Recalculating. And it was just so irritating. And uh, I don't know why it did it, except that the people who designed it obviously were very angry people. Um, <laughs> But we remember that. Well, throughout all history, since the first coming of Christ, there have been predictors about when Christ is going to return. And um, when they miss it, and all the predictors except those who have predicted any date that's after today, <laughs> all right, because we can't say for sure that they've missed it, right, until today is done. But anybody who's predicted anything before now has been wrong. And it's probably been literally in the tens of thousands of people. And probably every date on the calendar has been predicted at one point or another in the last almost 2,000 years. And you would think that when they would get it wrong, they would say, wow, maybe I should have really paid attention to what Jesus said when he said he didn't even know when it was. But they don't. Instead, they recalculate. <laughs> and they come up with new dates until it's one bridge too far, they realize, I don't think, I think I'm going to lose everybody with this one. And then they say, oh, Jesus came in the last time I, predict, I, I predicted. You just didn't get to see it. And I am him. You know, that's, that's kind of how it's done. And so, um, you've got all this recalculating. They do this in spite of what Peter says and in spite of what Jesus says. So, uh, Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, a couple weeks we'll come back to the rest of that verse. But I want you to see that it says, like a thief. And that has to do with 
timing and knowing when it's going to happen, and it actually hyperlinks to Jesus, reading the Gospels, where He said that the end coming will, be, will come like a thief. And so, when Jesus said that, He would explain, you're going to be going about your everyday life, and you'll not be thinking about his returning, and then all of a sudden, he will have come. And that's what it means by like a thief. And in spite of this, you have these date setters. This in spite of Jesus very clearly saying, and we know that this is true at least of Jesus as he was truly human and truly divine, living on this earth, that as far as Jesus living on this earth at least, he said, I don't even know the date. Only the Father knows. So, in spite of that, we still have date setters. Uh, several reasons for it. Um, some people, I, I, I don't know exactly what to call it, but it seems to be, it, it, it's consistent enough, and I've seen enough people that have this, this tendency to set dates, I've known some, that it seems to be a mental condition, which is not an excuse because there's still agency, there's still an ability to read what Jesus said and go, I have a compulsion to set a date and to tell it to everybody, but I'm not going to share it because I'm going to take Jesus seriously. So it's, it's sometimes I really believe a mental condition. Sometimes it's about fame and money. You can make a lot of money. Uh, you make a lot, a lot of money by predicting the coming of Christ. And if you don't make a lot of money by doing that, it's just you're a bad business person. That's, that's the only reason, because you can make a lot, a lot of money. I mean, if you've watched this Alex Jones trial, he's the guy that said Sandy Hook was a false flag operation. Um, and so he did that on his podcast. He makes, some days, it's estimated he makes $885,000 a day. There's a lot of money in uh, proclaiming lies. And, and it's just like, I heard someone on the BBC, British accent, interviewing an American about this, and said, why do people do this, and why do people believe it? And the guy went off on some, what I would just call a kind of a political agenda answer. And I said, <laughs> you know, I said, I, I, I'm sitting in my car listening to this, it's on NPR, and I'm like, uh, the answer is very simple because there's a lot of money or fame to be made uh, from, from what Alex Jones is doing, and there are a lot of very, and I, I, I don't know, i got to try to find a word that I'm not going to violate the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people who act in very, 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 very foolish ways that believe things that are, I mean, just, just imagine, I mean, every time I think about this, I want to pull my hair, you know, just imagine in the school, right, you know, Bailey Elementary, or right here, Red Rock, a bunch of children being killed by a, a shooter. 
and somebody in another state says it's a false flag operation, how many people right here in our community would have to be in on this lie? It's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. There would be children at the school um, if it was a false flag operation who could deny it and would be denied. There would be parents. There would be so many things. It's just, it's just mind-boggling, which then makes me go, okay, you look at a situation like this where you have people predicting when Christ is going to return in spite of the fact that Jesus said, don't do it because I don't even know. Mind-boggling. But it happens. And one of the reasons is because there is fame and money to be made, at least for a while. Um, some people may, just may be true believers. I don't know how, but some people just may be true believers. So I can't really question the motives of anybody. I can't say, oh, they have a mental condition, or they're just trying to make money, or they're just, I, I don't know. But it's got to be in the mix, right? And so whatever the motivation, these people do so much damage to real people. I mean, in the Alex Jones case, there are people that listening to Alex Jones go out and shoot at the homes of some of these people. Why, I, I don't know. Send hateful mail I mean, in the numbers of thousands that do this. And so it's just, it's, it's tragic when people get caught up in something like this. It damages real people's lives when people predicting the return of Christ. Um, it breaks up families. It's just tragic when that thing happens. Okay, so my pastoral advice on the timing and on the whole second coming. One of them is change the channel. When someone starts lining up events or the stars to show you that the return is right around the corner, I recommend you just stop listening or reading or watching. Just change the channel. Personally, even if they're just talking in general terms. Personally, that's personally, but... That's not what I mean here. If they're like lining it up and saying, okay, I can predict that within my lifetime or this number of years it's going to happen, change the channel. Number two, pastoral advice is recognize that all the events the Bible clearly outlines as preceding Christ's coming have already happened, all of them, in the first century. In the first century, all of them. Danny, Talked about it last week. The New Testament people, every time you see about the last days, it's always talking about their day. It's intentional. They're living in the last days. We've been living in the last days for almost 2,000 years. Um, when someone tells you that there are events that the Bible talks about that have not yet happened, it's always based always based on speculative interpretations of Bible passages. Always. It's not a clear reading of a Bible passage. It's something that they believe in maybe another small group of people, but if you look back at the history of interpretation of Scripture, nobody else believed what they are telling you. They've kind of discovered something new. So, um, uh, just recognize it's it's speculative, and you want to you invest yourself in something that's speculative? I don't think you really do. 
Um, for 2,000 years, all the predictors, like I said, have been proven wrong. Why believe that the next person that is making a prediction is going to be right based on a speculative, speculative interpretation of Scripture? Some people want to say that this has to be the time because things are so bad. Study history. <laughs> However bad things are now, there have been much worse times over the last 2,000 years. You might say, well, it's only been in the last 80 years or so that we have the ability to wipe out the planet. God never needed the ability to wipe out the planet for Jesus to return. <laughs> Nothing has changed. He never needed that. Um, he doesn't need nuclear weapons, he doesn't need climate change, he doesn't need any of those things to bring about the end. Here's the next one. If speculating about the second coming is an interest of yours or a hobby of yours, don't let it become an obsession. Now, just because I don't kind of get that interest, although I kind of do because I lived through the 70s and it was everywhere, and I was in high school, and it was kind of in college, and, you know, you couldn't, it was everywhere in the churches, all right? Um, so I, I kind of get it, but I, I, maybe everybody has to live through a period like that and finally go, oh, boy, you know. But we're all wired differently. There's things that I really get into that you probably look at and go, how can you be interested in that, right? So we're all different. We're all wired differently. So if you have an interest in, the, in this, it's okay. Don't let it become an obsession, and don't let your interests, you know, cross into predictions. And then, lastly, based on what Jesus and Peter said, we're free from having to figure out the timing. In other words, if you feel, like, compelled, I really got to figure this out, um, you're free from that. You simply have to live a life of readiness, which is what we're going to get into next week when Peter then answers the next question, the so what question. So if Jesus is coming back, so what? What are we supposed to do? And he answers that. And so we're going to be looking at that next week. Now, every week we, um, we begin our response here to God's Word. And so we're going to go into our third movement of our worship service, which is responding and I just uh, I want to encourage you to get your communion packet out. And I just want, want to remind you, this is one of those ways that this subject permeates everything in Scripture. You know, what did Jesus say at the Last Supper, which is what our communion time is based on? He, was, he, he said, I am not going to drink of the fruit of this vine until I drink it in my kingdom. He's talking about his return. And, and so we're reminded every single time, and every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're not just reminded of his death. We're not just reminded, we, I shouldn't say just, we're not, yeah, we're not just reminded about what his death was about. It was for us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. But we're also reminded and encouraged by the fact that he is going to return. And as, Peter, as, a, as Paul says in one of his letters, if we're not here when he returns, it doesn't matter. We will come with him to get everybody who is. We're not going to miss it. 
So let's, let's begin our response by remembering that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. We thank you. We thank you, Father, for Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for your life. We thank you for Holy Spirit for awakening faith within us, illuminating our hearts and our minds. We thank you that we can look forward to your return, Jesus. We pray for those that we love, that we care about, people we work with, neighbors we care about, friends. We're far from you. They don't recognize their need to repent and to put their faith in you to receive what Jesus did on the cross for us. We pray, Father, that we would be lights pointing them to you. We would use our actions and our words. We pray, Father, that we would be on mission for you to share that with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.